Good time. Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Good morning again. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, right? Especially where it's nice and cool. This side of the room, you can hang meat in. This one over here is like African safari. It's weird how the AC is. It's like on this wall, so these people get frozen and we don't get enough over here. So why don't we go ahead and just do this real quick? <laughs> Some of the ladies are like, yes, I've been waiting for this all morning. I'm freezing. We have been studying the Paul's second missionary journey in the book of Acts. Last week we wrapped up the amazing sermon he preached before the Areopagus High Court in Athens in chapter 17. This morning, we are going to begin chapter 18. No applause, no hallelujah, no he's starting to pick up speed, none of that. Yeah, turn over to Acts 18. Chapter 18 begins uh, with the Corinth episode. Okay, we know Paul has been going around planting churches in different cities. First journey, he pretty much stuck to one part of the continent, and then he, you know, the second journey, he goes off into the Greek provinces and what have you. And chapter 18 begins with the Corinthian episode, if you will. It's basically represented in the first 17 verses. 1 through 17 is where we see that storyline, that narrative, that episode. I've divided that section into five teachable uh, sections. I've divided the whole 17 or the Corinthian episode into five teachable sections. And, and the reason why I've done that is because some of the verses are going to get more attention than others because there's some repetition here. Luke wrote, this is a historical account, and so when he talks about Paul's sermon in one place, he's not going to reiterate all that that means in another. He just sort of starts to abbreviate. And, uh, and so some sections are going to get more or verses are going to get more attention than others. So I thought I'd break it up into five teachable sections. We'd deal with each section and, and just give each one the proper amount of time. The sections will be divided. You've got Paul's visit and labor, verses 1 to 5. You have the Jewish opposition. No surprise there, right? Verse 6, we see that Paul goes to the Gentiles, verses 7 through 8. The Lord's encouragement to Paul. We'll spend quite a bit of time there. That's verses 9 to 11. And then you have the tribunal, um, a court setting, verses 12 to 17. Not sure if we'll get there today, but we'll certainly give it a shot. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll get started here. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth, to the gospel Lord, there are some present in this room who believe the gospel, and there are more than likely some here that do not believe the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would come to us in power, in regenerating, illuminating power, that you would seek and save the lost, if there might be someone here who has yet to come to the gospel, to know the gospel, to know Jesus Christ. For those of us who do believe the gospel, the saints, Lord, I pray that you would sanctify us today, that you would teach us and train us and conform us to the image of Christ. May your word be preached in power today, not because I'm powerful, but because you are. May the Holy Spirit come upon us in this place. 
Fill me with the Holy Spirit as I preach. Guard my tongue. May you be glorified and honored through this sermon. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Section 1, Paul's visit and labor. Verses 1 to 5, I'll read it after this. Paul left Athens, that's where he's been, that's what we've been talking about for a couple of weeks. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, uh, recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla, only God could orchestrate such a marriage with similar names. It's like Julia Gulia, it's kind of interesting. A native of Pontus recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Great couple because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them and because he was of the same trade, we're talking about Paul going to see this couple, he stayed with them, he had the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus, that their Messiah was Jesus, if you will. Corinth, according to our historian Luke, uh, the next place Paul visited after Athens was Corinth. This is where he went immediately after being in Athens and preaching to the Areopagus and and examining all the idolatry and all the things that he did in Athens. I would imagine he was there for some time, uh, not terribly long, but he was there. But after he left, he made the journey, I think, 50 miles away to Corinth. Corinth was the most prominent city in Achaia, which is the region that we've been looking at, which is southern Greece. This was the city of the cities there. This was the New York, if you will. This was the Miami. This was the Seattle uh, bustling city, lots of trade. It was on a major crossroad. Uh, Actually, it was at like the dividing point between southern Greece and northern Greece. The only way, because of the travel route, the only way that you could get to southern Greece was to, from north to south, vice versa, was to go through Corinth. So essentially, everyone in the area, in this part of Greece, went to Corinth at some point if they were just traveling from north to south or vice versa. Versa, all traffic, nearly virtually all traffic had to go through this particular city, which made Corinth a primary place of trade and commerce in all of Greek. I would say the primary. Corinth was known for its fine pottery and bronze. Uh, You've probably even heard of Corinthian leather. I have no idea if there's a relationship there. But Corinth was known for these sorts of things, these excellent, high-quality products. Their pottery was very, very valuable, and they had a special, because of the minerals and and metallics and things in the region and their soil and these things, they had a uh, particular method of taking these things and combining them and making this one-of-a-kind sort of bronze that you couldn't get anywhere else. Corinth actually founded trade colonies. It's like we want to plant churches, Well, Corinth actually went out and planted trade colonies. You've heard of Syracuse, New York. Syracuse, there was a Syracuse there, and there's a a Lucas. A Lucas, actually, I think is the way it's pronounced. Both of these places, these smaller town cities, if you will, were actually founded by Corinth as trade colonies. They marketed, if you will, the Corinthian goods to other parts of the continent. Corinth 
also shipped its bronze and pottery and various valuable goods uh, throughout all of the world. They had two major ports. It was a port city, if you will, and it had two major ports where they would ship all these great, fantastic goods throughout the whole world. Corinth became known as a naval superpower with its fleet of, I think it's pronounced trireme warships. Have you ever seen the movie Ben-Hur? Right? Ramming speed. Dun, 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 dun. You've seen Ben-Hur? Have you guys seen this? Have the younger guys seen it? They're like, what's a Ben-Hur? Well, it's an old classic movie with one of my all-time favorite guys, Charlton Heston. And, and in this movie, he, you know, he's a slave and he gets assigned to this you know, the Greek Navy or whatever, and they have all these long boats that have all these oars on the side. Have you seen these big, long wooden boats, like with a dragon head on the front, kind of, you know, right? you got all the oars on it. That's a trireme. And so the Corinthians actually created, invented this warship, if you will, and they had thousands of them. And so at any given moment, they could dispatch their navy to go deal with some lesser person and annihilate them. So they had this naval, they were a naval superpower, if you will. And historians estimate that there may have been as many as 300,000, which is unique to that period. You didn't have, you know, the 2.3 point, million people in cities that you do today back in those days. You had 60,000, and that was a major city. Well, this one, Corinth, had as many as 300,000 people at its peak. And so that alone set it apart from most places Athens was an amazing city, and it had far less people in it. Corinth also featured the temple of Aphrodite, which drew in people from all over the world. Aphrodite was the alleged goddess of love, and every evening 1,000 prostitutes would enter the temple and engage in their trade and so you can imagine what kind of effect that had on the culture. A thousand prostitutes working out of this temple, doing what they do. All of these people coming from all over the world to visit this place, which was considered one of the wonders of the world. Uh, unfortunately, because of these things, business was booming there as multitudes of foreigners entered the city to visit the temple. Corinth became hailed as the world's center for immorality and debauchery it would have been paralleled to maybe Las Vegas Sin City in its day obviously Las Vegas is larger uh, but it's pretty much no holds barred in Las Vegas everything goes and that's precisely how it was in Corinth when Paul entered the city he met a Jewish couple named Aquila and Priscilla Rhyming names. They hadn't been deposed from Rome when the emperor Claudius decreed that all Jews had to leave the city, is what the text says. In AD 41, Claudius passed an edict that forced Jews to adhere to the Greek ancestral way of life. And he prohibited them from attending public gatherings. We might say that Claudius attempted to rid Rome, the ancient city, of all synagogues and all Jewish activity. He may have done this 
in response to the disturbances the Jews made when Christian missionaries visited their synagogues. Now, we've seen this in a sense, haven't we? As we've studied Paul's missionary journeys, he goes in and preaches the gospel. He's a Christian. The Jews explode, create riots, and all of this trouble. Now, this might have been taking place in the mother city, if you will, long before Paul even wrote any of these things. And so we don't know for sure why he came against the Jews the way that he did, but he most certainly did. But somehow the Jews were still able to gather and to kind of do their thing in Rome. In AD 49, roughly a year before Paul came to Corinth, Claudius, his patience, Claudius's patience and tolerance ran out. He passed a second edict that banned all Jews from living in Rome. Can you imagine what this must have been like? You are no longer allowed to be here. You must pack your bags and your belongings. I'm not even sure if he gave them that kind of grace. You must get your stuff and get out of here is what Claudius said. I've had it with you people. I'm tired of your, you know, your religious zeal and you're creating trouble for us here. We want peace and these sorts of things and, and you're a bunch of zealots and it's crazy and get the heck out of here. Go somewhere else. And he basically kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And Aquila and Priscilla were among the deposed. They were among those who got the boot. Aquila and Priscilla were already, by the time we read this, by the time this was written, by the time Paul actually went into Corinth, they were already followers of Jesus Christ. We, we don't know how. We, they must have been converted back in Rome prior to their deportation. We have no insight. Luke doesn't include any insight, but the narrative seems to imply, infer that they were already believers. It's like when Paul found them, yes, they were Jewish, but they were Messianic Jews. They were converts. So there was an immediate bond and connection. Some scholars, as I was reading different you know, theologians, as I was reading different commentaries, speculate that they might have moved, that Aquila and Priscilla might have moved to Corinth for evangelistic reasons. Not just because they had been booted out of Rome. I mean, they could have went to Athens, they could have went to Berea, they could have went to any other Achaian city, if you will, any other city in that part, and there were many, but they chose to go to Corinth, and some say they went there to be evangelists. They knew that Corinth, Temple of Aphrodite, Las Vegas, all that's going on there, they need the gospel, they need Jesus Christ. And so they think that they may have gone there for those reasons we don't know for sure. By the grace of God, Paul became, and by the providence of God, Paul became immediately linked up with these two like-minded servants of Christ. Isn't that amazing? He has gone into all these other cities, no believers, no contact, no connection. He preaches the gospel, people get saved, then he's got fellowship. He's got that safety net, if you will, but he comes into Corinth, which would have been the toughest city of all the cities he visited to this point, and immediately God links him with a couple of believers who are like-minded. This is God's grace and his providence in action. The text says that Aquila and Priscilla were business owners. They were leather workers who constructed custom-made tents. Tent making essentially meant that you were a leather worker. Tents back then were not made of the cruddy nylon. We think of our easy ups and pop ups. Back then they were made, they were very, very high quality wood construction, leather fabric, if you will. They were very, very high end. And these two people were 
experts at making these tents out of this leather material. They were leather workers, if you will. This was a very popular and lucrative business in that particular region. Tents were in high demand by military personnel. Uh, they, military personnel would go into a new city or a place either of conquest or in transition to somewhere else and they didn't want to stay in the inns because they were nothing less than dirty, nasty brothels. That's what hotels were like back then. You didn't have the five star. You had the minus five star. And so military personnel were like, we, we don't want to stay in these nasty, dank you know, we've got, I've got a horse sleeping next to me, for crying out loud. I don't want Mr. Ed, you know, next to me here. And so they would build these, you know, they would come and order these tents, and they would sleep in tents. And, and, and if you were traveling amongst the open territory, you would see rows and rows of all these tents with all these soldiers bunked out, campsite, if you will. That's how they did it. And so business was massive because of the military, it was big because of travelers. They used tents. They didn't want to stay in the Motel 6 either. You got traveling merchants. They put up their tents and stuff at night. Uh, and you've got shop owners. If we were to cruise through, walk through one of the ancient Greek agoras or shopping centers, we would notice there rows and rows of leather-made awnings and tents. You know, shops back then, shopkeepers didn't have these nice mall-like buildings that we have with the A.C. flowing. And boy, did you need A.C. back here. This is Mediterranean, real hot, real dank, real humid. But don't think of, you know, shopping in malls like we have them. Think of rows and rows of tents with guys underneath them with their wares, marketing their, their goodies and selling their goodies. And so you can get a sense for how lucrative this business must have been because of the culture and because of the things they used and the way they set up shop and the soldiers and all this stuff. And so what does that mean? It means that Priscilla and Aquila were pretty wealthy people. They had some money. They were, you know, their, their trade was very much sought after. They were in demand. Verse 3 says that Paul stayed with them and worked for them. Not just that he stayed with them, hey, you know, some Christian hospitality, but that he actually became employed by them. He became their employee, if you will. All Jewish teachers of the law, the Torah, now keep in mind that that was, he was a teacher of the law, he still was in a sense, but he's all about the gospel now, but all Jewish teachers of the law of the Torah in the first century had to have a trade. They had to have something that they could do to make income. Not everyone got paid by the religious system. Not everyone, you know, had a pastor's salary, if you will, a rabbi's salary. Not everyone was paid by the temple, if you will, if they worked there. Most people were unemployed. In fact, I don't think the temple gave out any wages at all. So there was no money to go around, not in our churches today. So if you were a minister, you had to be what we would call bivocational. You, you had to basically, if you were serving the Lord in ministry and preaching the gospel or whatever, or if you were a Jewish guy, you know, doing the whole Torah bit, man, you had to, you had to earn your money. You wouldn't eat if you didn't pay your, you know, earn money and buy your food just like everyone else. And I'll tell you what, as a bivocational pastor at this church, that has been 
a place and point of struggle for me because to be focused on trying to earn money to feed your family and then to focus on these other things. Now, it all belongs to the Lord. I'm serving the Lord at all times, but to try to stop that and write sermons and all that and do everything, it's tough. It's tough to be divided between all things. But I can tell you this, church, it's been one of the greatest blessings too. I would say that it's been more of a blessing for me and our family. Even though I'm wrecked to the gills and busy, it's been a huge blessing because I work in out in the secular world, as many and most of you do, which helps to keep me sensitive to you. Because when I was a pastor somewhere else, not to anyone's fault, and I was a full-time vocational pastor at another church in town, I love that church, I've got many friends there, I was behind the four walls of the church 10, 12 hours a day. That's all I saw. All I talked to was Christians and dealt with other pa- All I dealt with was pastors most of the time. On Sundays, it was the little tiny sheep. You know, I was a junior high guy. And, you know, you can grow, you can become, you know, insensitive towards the people of God who are out there gutting it out in the world if you're a pastor behind the four walls of the church and that's all you ever do and all you ever hear and all you ever think about. You know, I, I, I never heard at Big Valley when I was there in amongst pastor meetings, F-bombs and people talking the way they do in the world, but at my secular job, it's all I hear all day. And it helps me to remind me of who I am and, and what you're struggling with. You know, you guys, you guys live in the world. You're not, you're not, you live in it. You're not of it. But I, I can get a sense of what that's like. Now, I think Paul could totally relate to those that he preached to because he had to earn his money out in the world and then he had his ministry. It's an amazing blessing that, that, that I experience here. Now, families who owned manufacturing businesses or trade businesses like Aquila and Priscilla usually slept in a loft above their shop, okay? So when you were a business owner back in these days, you didn't have this nice 6,000 square foot warehouse, you know, over off of North Star, and then you lived over, you know, in Floridaville. Actually, it's that way. You basically cooked your meals, slept, changed your clothes, you did everything everything raised and reared children, you did it all inside of your business locale. Now, if you work out of the house, that's real easy to relate to, right? I work out of the house, essentially, when it, when it comes to church. I have an office there. I do all that. Now, just think about having this trades business and, and you having a little loft where you sleep up there and somewhere in this place there's a stove or whatever, and, and that's how it was. This family would have been climbing stairs that, you know, they were on the outside of the building or a rickety, cruddy ladder against the back wall. And that, you know, when it was time to stop working, and you know if your work is right there in your home, you're going to be working all the time. You know, you're going to wake up in the middle of the night, you can't sleep, you go down and you start sewing, right? So these people would have to traverse these stairs on the outside or a ladder in the back. That's where they slept. That's where their living quarters were, if you will. It's pretty amazing. People basically, their whole life, existed inside their business, inside their shop. Now, if the business was lucrative, if it was successful enough to hire employees as we see their business was lucrative enough to do that because they hired Paul, the people, the employees, they didn't get to go up into the loft. They had to sleep down in the shop, okay, right next to the, you know, table saw or whatever. They would put makeshift beds for them down there That is exactly what happened with Paul. Paul would sleep down inside the shop. He came and stayed with them. They probably put a cot in the corner, and and that's where he 
slept. On Sabbath days, the text says, Paul visited the synagogue to preach the gospel. Corinth had a reasonably large Jewish population, partly in due that, uh, part, partly due to the fact that Jews were driven out of Rome. And so they went to all these other cities, and there were thousands of Jews in Rome when this happened. And so Corinth had a reasonably large population, maybe due in part because of Rome or for other, whatever reasons, whatever reasons we don't know. But they had a synagogue there, if not one synagogue, many synagogues. The text says, again, that Paul went to the synagogue every Sabbath to try to reason from the Scripture that Jesus was the Christ. And so Corinth had a synagogue. Now, we've learned in the past that you had to have a certain amount of Jewish heads of households and these things to have a synagogue. And so we can see immediately that if they had a synagogue, and some speculate that they had many of them because there were a lot of Jews, boom, we got synagogues here. As was Paul's custom, right? We've talked about this over and over and over. As we've studied the book of Acts, the first thing he did in every city he went to was went to the synagogue. If it didn't have a synagogue, he'd go somewhere else and preach. And so he did that here too. He went to the synagogue every Sabbath and reasoned from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He sought to persuade the Jews of this fact. To the Jew first, again, he's living out as he goes into Corinth. During this particular time, Timothy and Silas arrived and rejoined him. They rejoined Paul. There's a bit of confusion as to where these two had come from. One view says they came from Berea because that is where Paul left them before he went to Athens and then to Corinth. Another view says that Timothy came from Thessalonica and Silas from Athens. So the, the idea is that Timothy and Silas actually joined Paul in Athens as he requested. Remember back when we read that, back towards the beginning or middle of chapter 17? He left them in Berea, and then he went to Athens, and right when he got there, he said, now go back and get the other guys who are doing this thing with me. But we never really saw them show up there. There was nothing that really pointed to that. But some think that, yes, they actually came there, and hung out with him in Athens for a bit of time. During his ministry to the Athenian folks, he may have sent Timothy back to Thessalonica, which was the city he visited before Berea. Remember, they were driven out of there. There was trouble and problems arising in the Thessalonican church, and he may have sent Timothy, the young Padawan, if you will, to go to Thessalonica. While he's in Athens, go to Thessalonica and deal with these issues and preach the gospel and help to ground these people. And then when he left from Athens to go to Corinth, he may have left Silas there in Athens to help kind of work on that church and to build a foundation, a gospel foundation for those believers. I think that that view makes a lot of sense, more so than them staying in Berea and then finally meeting up with them in Corinth. You know, churches are filled with people like us, and they're problematic because we're sinners. And we need discipleship. We need leadership. You know, can you imagine going into a city, a new city? Let's pick a city. We go into the city. We plant a church, and, and the, you know, there's, there's a handful of believers there, and then we're driven out of there by angry religious people, yet the church remains. What's it going to be like for those believers? Do they not need more leadership and training and investment and, and you know, discipleship before they can actually really take a hold? You, you can't just appoint, hey, I got saved yesterday. Oh, guess what? You're an elder. The scriptures say don't do that lest he become puffed up. 
you know, and so it makes sense. I like that view. Hey, Timothy, you go up to Thessalonica and, and help those believers. Silas, you stay here in Athens and help these believers. I'm going to move on, and you guys come join with me in a month or two. And I think that's exactly what happened. It makes a lot of sense. And 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 5 seems to affirm this view uh, to a degree, you can go back and read that on your own time. We know one thing is for certain, no matter how they, where they were or how they came back together, we know that the three men were united at Corinth right here in the text. So that's a little background on what's going on there in Corinth. Paul's labor, what he was doing, he was laboring in tent making, he was laboring in proclaiming the gospel in the synagogue, if not synagogues. Section 2, the Jewish opposition, verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, speaking of the Jews, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. And then he says, From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. After months of preaching, the gospel in the Corinthian synagogue or synagogues, the Jews had had enough of Paul and his preaching and turned against him and opposed him, even reviled him. That means to hate him with the deepest possible hatred, to think of him as the scum of the earth. They couldn't stand him. They were no different from their brothers in Thessalonica and Pisidian Antioch. We read about these things earlier. We studied how they, the Jews there responded to Paul, how they hated him. They hated the gospel. They hated Jesus. And after laboring the way that he did in these synagogues, and after having them respond to him the way that they did, and it might have been gradual, but it sort of culminated with them just flat out opposing him, reviling him, slandering him, cursing him. After all of that work, after months of building a foundation, they did this to him, and Paul was fed up. I'm done. I've preached, and I've preached, and I've preached, and I've reasoned with you. I've showed you from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, and you still oppose me. You still oppose him. You still reject the gospel. He just got fed up. The text says that because of this, he shook out his garments this is a symbol of his rejection of their behavior. They rejected him. Him dusting off his clothes is his rejection towards them, a physical way of doing that. Jews knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus said, if you go into a city and they reject you, they spurn you, shake off your shoes, shake off your sandals, shake off your clothes, and move on. This is what he's doing. Not only did he shake out his garments in front of them, a symbol of his rejection of their behavior and attitude, their disposition. But he also held them accountable by saying, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. It's as if he's saying, hey, I've been preaching the words of life to you. I've been preaching the gospel to you. Yet you reject it and prefer death. You want to remain in your sins, rejecting the very Messiah that came to die for you on a cross, to rise from the grave, to deliver you from your sin, to give you life. God sent him to you, Jews. 
I'm innocent. I've done all I can do for you. I have preached and preached and reasoned and answered your questions. I have beseeched you. I have begged you. I have pleaded with you. And you reject me. You reject the gospel, more importantly. Your blood's on you. There's a parallel to those today who listen and listen and listen and hear and listen to the gospel and they oppose, they spurn, they reject. Their blood is on their own head. You will never be able to say, God never gave me a chance. You will never be able to say, as Richard Dawkins has recently said, Somebody asked him a question, said, what are you going to say before God on that day of judgment? And he said, I will tell him, why didn't you reveal yourself to me? Excuse me? Have I not made myself known to you through all I've created? Have I not made myself known to you through Ravi Zacharias and Ken Ham and everyone who's ever debated you? Have I not made myself known to you through that Sunday school teacher that you sat under her teaching for all those years and she loved you like Jesus? No. It's not going to fly. I made myself known to you. You heard the gospel over and over and over. Your blood's on your head. Paul had done exactly what he had been called to do. He faithfully preached the gospel to them, but they rejected it. And guess what? They were therefore responsible for their actions. Every person who rejects the gospel will be held responsible for rejecting the gospel. Now the final blow came through Paul's statement about going to the Gentiles. It was as if he said, since you've declared yourselves unworthy of salvation, I'll take the message of salvation to Greeks. I'll take it to non-Jews. The Messiah came for you and you've counted yourself as being unworthy to receive his gift. I'll take it to, I'll take it to those who might very well listen. Now that was a blast because I'll tell you what, man, that was a shocking statement. Because pious Jews considered Gentiles to be unworthy subhumans. Less than dogs, itchy, scratchy, flea-ridden, begging dogs. That's what they thought of Gentiles. And Paul says, essentially, in their own context, you've counted yourself unworthy, you don't want to hear it, I'll go take it to the dogs. Paul didn't think of Gentiles as dogs, but his listeners did. I'll go preach it to animals. Now, it's important to note here that Paul was not forfeiting his ministry to all Jewish people everywhere. Some have tried to interpret, infer that here. Well, he's just given up on the Jews completely. Now he's forsaking his commissioning to the Jew first, Gentile second. No. This has to do with the Corinthian Jews. Not every Jew everywhere. I'm done with you, Corinthian Jews, is what he's saying. He will still have a ministry, a preaching ministry to Jews as we progress and move through the narrative. It only applies here to the Corinthian Jews. I've had it with you. You've had it with me. Equal feeling here. 
section 3, Paul goes to the Gentiles and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Eustace, some would say Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. What is Luke going to start telling us now? Why would you include that detail? He lived next door. What? Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Paul was basically booted from the synagogue, right? With everyone's feet, all the Jewish feet just landed perfectly on his rump, blasted him right out of here, get out of here. They reviled him, they kicked him out. But the guy who lived next door to the synagogue was more than willing to allow Paul to set up shop at his house and preach the gospel. Isn't that fantastic? Hey, man, those guys are mean. Just come over here. Where do you live at? Right next door. Now, this guy's name was Titius Eustace. Titius was a Gentile God-fearer or partial convert to Judaism. He was a Greek who was attempting to become Jewish in his religion, if you will. And the text says he worshiped God, but the text says that he had been converted to Christ basically during Paul's preaching ministry. Somehow he heard the gospel, he was converted, and his house may have become right next to the synagogue, the first church plant in Corinth. I mean, if you're going to plant a church in a city, why not do it right next to some other type of church? You got the Buddhist temple here? Redemption Hill right next door. I'd even put on the stuff. I'd put on a monk suit. How far would you be willing to go to reach people for Christ, especially those who are mixed up in false religion? Paul says, I became like a Jew. If I needed to become like a Jew, I became like a Gentile. He would become like all things just to win some to Christ. I love the fact that this Titius guy gets saved and says, hey, they booted you out of here, but I got a cool place for you over here. It's actually a little nicer building. I don't know if that's what he said, but moved him right in. I love the fact that it was next door. Titius' home began to bustle with activity as people came to hear Paul preach. You think about that for a moment. You got a church next to another type of church. One church begins to explode. What's this other church thinking? All our people are going next door. We must put an end to this. Right? Or in today's world, what are they doing? Maybe we need to figure out what they're doing and we need to start doing it. Oh, they got a laser light show. They had Pink Floyd last week. We got to get them. How much are they? They're 30 grand. Okay. We need to have some sort of flash in the pan, you know, you know, gymnastic, ex, you know, extravaganza with pom-pom worship. Woo, give me a J. Woo, give me a bazooka, you know. I, can you see this little Christian church here begin to grow? And you got this other one here. You got the Jews here. You got the Christians here. And one's coming up and one's going down. Can you imagine what the tensions must have been like? All the Jews out in front, mad-dogging. All the Christians as they walked in with their Bibles. They didn't have them, but as they walked in with their scrolls. Just going to go worship the Lord. You guys have a good morning. 
coffee. You got to have that. The tensions must have been incredible. Now, one of the things that's a real trigger point here for how the tensions must have been is this Crispus guy. Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. (laughs) The lead pastor of the synagogue got saved and made his way out of the synagogue next door to Titius' house. Our pastor left us. He's next door. You think about that for a moment. You think the Jews were happy? This is incredible. And not only did Crispus, the the ruler of the synagogue, the senior leader in the synagogue get saved, but his entire household got saved. His kids, his wife, His male and female servants, if he had them, they probably did. This was Greek culture. It was common. They didn't clean their homes. They had their servants do it. They didn't prepare their meals. This is amazing. Synagogue, his household. It's almost like you got the synagogue and everyone around it's getting saved and loving Jesus. Pressing in. Pretty, pretty incredible. And not only did Crispus and Titius and and Crispus' household get saved, but the text also says at the end of it, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Man, we got a revival going on here. The Holy Spirit's on this thing. He's preaching the gospel. The Holy Spirit's saving people. This church is blowing up. It's exploding. People are getting saved. That's right next door to the synagogue. Section 4. The Lord's encouragement to Paul, verses 9 to 11. This is interesting. Pay real close attention to what happens here. You might be led to believe right off the bat that it's unwarranted, but it's completely warranted. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, and sometimes Jesus visited his servants in a vision and spoke to them. And this is what he said in the vision. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. See, that's an imperative. That's a command. Don't stop preaching under any circumstances. He says, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And then it says, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Amazing passage here. In the midst of this revival, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's Lord, that's who the Lord is in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, Jesus visited Paul in a vision. At this point in his Corinthian ministry, Paul may have become discouraged and defeated because of the strong oppression he experienced. It is very common for the servant of Christ to feel oppression, to become discouraged, even in the midst of a tremendous revival. In fact, I think that's where the enemy, why would the enemy attack you if nothing's going on? When there's a revival, Satan ups his tactics. And in the midst of this amazing revival, he's preaching the gospel, and these people are getting saved left and right. He is defeated feeling. He is beaten. Now, Paul was, and this is really, honestly, the first time we've seen anything like this in the narrative. 
We have seen nothing but Paul being strong and bold and courageous and constantly moving forward. And here there's a little bit of a pause. Now Paul was no doubt an amazing man of God. An amazing missionary. But he was just a man just like the rest of us guys in here. He was just a person. At times, he was plagued by the same things that plague us because he was a sinner saved by grace. You see, you can study the life and ministry of Paul for a period of time and you can begin to believe that he was perfect and never made any mistakes or did anything wrong. No doubt he was a super saint or whatever the heck that means. And here there's a pause. Luke intentionally puts this in here to show us Paul's, that Paul has a propensity to be weak and feeble in the flesh just as every servant has. Pretty amazing. The Lord was aware of his struggle, of his plight, of his concern, and therefore came to him in a vision. In the vision, Jesus issued two exhortations and three promises in an attempt to pull him out of this funk that he was going deeper and deeper into. Let's look at these things here. A, Jesus exhorted Paul not to be afraid. He said, do not fear. Do not be afraid in the middle of verse 9. Fear in this particular verse here has nothing to do with the vision itself in that he was afraid in the vision, like the vision scared him. I just saw a ghost. Nothing like that as some have tried to infer. What a reckless handling of this text. The fear here had to do with Paul's opponents. Paul had been severely rebuffed at the synagogue. And tensions were increasing between the Jews and Paul and his, as his ministry flourished. The conversion of the synagogue ruler and the revival were about to put Paul's enemies over the top. And Paul could see that tensions were rising and he may have experienced some fear as to what would happen to him. But Paul usually didn't fear for himself. He feared for other believers. And so his fear might have been directed towards what's going to become of this small church whom God has graciously planted. What are these enemies of the gospel going to do to these supporters of the gospel? Paul knew what was going on and so did Jesus. Jesus said something very similar to his disciples back during his ministry just before sending them out on a short-term Missions trip. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What's he saying? Don't fear those you'll preach to. Do the right thing. Fear the one who can absolutely destroy you. Not that God would have destroyed them because they were believers, but don't fear men. Don't fear those you'll preach to. Fear God. That's what Jesus told them. What about what Paul wrote in Romans 8.31? He learned this, tri this, this particular truth 
during his missionary journeys, okay? After going out and doing what he did, three missionary trips, he learned this truth, penned it a little bit later on. Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's as if Jesus is saying, you have no need of fear. You do not need to fear those Jews next door. You don't need to fear the Gentiles because some of them are going to reject you. You don't need to, to fear those who threaten you and who slander you and who threaten to kill you. Don't fear them. B, that was Jesus' first exhortation. Do not fear. B, second exhortation. Jesus exhorted Paul to keep preaching the gospel the end of verse 9, but go on speaking and do not be silent. You know, fear has a way of taking us out. Opposition can not only frustrate a minister of the gospel, it can derail him. The opposition Paul experienced at Corinth was very intense and would have caused many of today's preachers to either capitulate, well, forget the gospel, let's just go with what you're saying, or pack their bags and run. The opposition and rejection Paul experienced may have caused him to entertain thoughts of giving up and moving on. Maybe it's time for me to go to another city. There's no hope here. These people are savage. They're angry. They're mean. Did he not, in a sense, give up on these stubborn Corinthian Jews? Did he not? I've had it with you. Your blood's on your own hands. He just basically forfeited his preaching ministry to those stubborn, nasty, opposing Jews who were all over him and who were threatening him. Did he not? And what is Christ saying to him here? Don't do that. Don't you do that. Every Christian who has ever been opposed for speaking the truth has thought to him or herself, forget this. This ain't worth it. I'll leave or find something else to talk about. I, for crying out loud, I recently deactivated my Facebook account for one month. Partially because I got tired of trying to reason from the scriptures in how homosexuality is a deadly sin like all sexually immoral sin. And it kills people and thrusts them into hell. And, and here I am debating the subject, trying to win people to the truth. And here are all these Christians defending homosexuality. And in a sense, I went, I'm done with you. You don't want to believe the gospel? You don't want to believe the truth? And how did I respond? You just go up to the menu button and you just click on that and you just deactivate your account. I had a conversation with a pastor the other day, Rick Countryman, my friend, and, and he, said, he said something like this. Don't do that. He said, don't let losers, that's what he said, those are his words, don't let them dissuade you. You post great things on Facebook. You are a, a voice there. You are an encouragement to so many. Don't let those who reject scripture dissuade you from continuing your ministry there. And I said, well, the other reason why I got off was because I was spending too much time on it. <laughs> and he said, well, that's your fault. <laughs> You know, Rick, that's what he says. <laughs> yeah, that's your fault. Hey, that wasn't very nice. Don't tell me the truth. 
See, even I was doing it. You know, I'm talking about the truth. Well, I reactivated my account, and I've been a strong presence there ever since. <laughs> Not really. I put like two things on there about a wedding I DJed. I got tired of being rebuffed for my biblical stance on sexual immorality. Why else do so many Christians keep silent on the hot topic issues of our day? Stay away from homosexuality and gay marriage. Speaking the truth about those subjects will get you into a world of trouble. You know why? Because Christians do not want to be opposed and they do not want to suffer the stripes for standing on the foundation of God's truth. That's why. They, won't, they don't want to take up the cross. For 30 days there, I didn't want to bear that burden of that part of the cross. We all do it. Anyone who's ever been resisted or cursed or maligned or slandered because you love Jesus and you're about his truth and people come at you, doesn't feel good. Well, I've become more resolved today than at any other point throughout my faith walk to uphold the truth. The Lord has spoken to me many times and in many ways throughout the course of my faith walk. You know, the Facebook thing is one example of many. I have a new philosophy that I've begun to, to try to live by. Of course, I'll completely burn it as fuel next week when I wimp out because I do that once in a while. It's based on Galatians 4.16. Here it is. I would rather be hated for telling the truth than hailed for affirming a lie. I would rather be hated for telling the truth than hailed for affirming a lie. You see, and if you're hated for telling the truth, you are approved of by God. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer. If you stand for truth and you suffer the stripes, you're a blessed person. In fact, the apostles suffered for believing and proclaiming the gospel, and they considered it pure joy to, to be whipped physically for the sake of Christ, to be counted worthy to be his servant, to suffer as he suffered. Why would we expect anything less for us? We've all considered throwing in the towel when we are opposed. I certainly have. Paul may have considered this at this point. It's understandable. But God is telling us and said this to him in a sense in verse 9. Don't give up. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep gossiping the gospel. That's just gospel in everyday conversation. Don't stop. Uh, see, not three or whatever. Jesus promised Paul his continued presence. This may be the last one we get to handle. Beginning of verse 10, he says, for I am with you. Okay, look. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Don't stop preaching. Why? Because I am with you. I am with you. Another verse that comes to mind here is Matthew 28, 20. Just before his ascension, Jesus commissioned his disciples to take the gospel to all nations and to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to teach them all that Christ commanded, knowing that they would face great difficulty and tribulation. He said this. This is what Jesus said to his missionaries. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the 
stage, I will never leave you. It's going to get hard. Some of you are going to be killed. But I'll never leave you. I'm with you to the end of the age. Christ is the source of our strength and confidence and resolve. His presence and power are what move us forward and gird us against all foes. We can parallel Matthew 28, 20 with Isaiah 41, 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. Sounds similar to Jesus' vision, right? Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Amazing. What about Psalm 28, verse 7? The Lord is what? My strength and my shield In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. You see, what Paul needed to understand in the midst of his struggle was that Christ was with him, and that is how he could press on. That is how he could be without fear and continue to proclaim the gospel because of Christ's Powerful presence, perpetual presence. With Christ present, there is nothing that we cannot endure, even death. But unfortunately, we are prone to forgetting this amazing truth, especially when the enemy points his bow at us and begins to fire and fling his flaming arrows at us. What do we do? Instead of reflecting on this truth and and believing this truth and, and moving forward, we cry out, where are you, God? Why hast thou forsaken me? But Christ says, I am here. I am with you because I promised that I would never leave you nor forsake you. And I meant it. Amen? Some of us need to let that truth go deep inside of us. The Lord Jesus wants us to be without fear. The Lord Jesus wants us to to keep spreading the gospel. And the Lord Jesus promises to be with us. And that's how we can endure and move on. And take this life and this mission to bring the gospel to all nations by the you know, by the horns of the bull. Man, that's how we move forward. That's how we keep pressing on. We might get stripes for doing it. But he is with us. And we'll learn more about what his presence provides for us as we continue in these promises next week. Believe in the Lord Jesus today. Put your faith and trust in him Let it not be said of you that your blood is on your own head.
Turn away from your self-sufficiency, from your disbelief, from whatever religion you're engaged in, the religion of niceness and good works. That's all chaff and stubble. It's filthy rags before our God. Only Christ is true religion. Only he can save. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. May it never be said of you, your blood be on your own head. Believe in Christ today, now. If people are opposing you now, or if they do so in the future, don't capitulate. Don't run. Remember what the Lord has said. Stand firm and stick to the truth. Your opponents might become more displeased with you for doing this, but God will be pleased with you, and that is what truly matters, amen? Paul said, if I were continuing just to please men, my ministry would be of no value. Our ministry begins with the worship and and reverence and love for God. We serve him according to his truth, and we love others according to his truth. We need to be about pleasing him first and foremost in our lives. And sometimes that means displeasing men because they hate the truth and they choose darkness. But may the light of the gospel shine in and through us perpetually, consistently. The Lord is encouraging us today to press on. That's right, baby, preach it. Makes me want to cry too when I think of what Christ did for me. May we continue to fight the good fight of faith together as our brother Paul did in Corinth and beyond. We have a time of communion now where it is for believers only. If you're not a believer, I pray that you'd become one right now, that you'd surrender your heart to Christ. It is for believers. It's a time for us to confess our sin, to repent of sin, to turn away from it, to remember the finished work of Jesus Christ, that, that, man, it's all in him. He did it all. It was all done at Calvary and through that tomb and through his perfect living. There's nothing we can add or subtract from it. It's all Jesus. It's all about Jesus and what he did. That we would remember that and believe that this morning and that we would be refreshed by God's grace this morning and that we would commit ourselves to obeying the Lord, especially in what we've heard today. May you be emboldened by the truth of the gospel today and continue to press on wherever it is that you live, wherever it is that you work, wherever it is that you attend school, wherever it is that you shop. May we give ourselves to the cause of Christ wholeheartedly and in his power and strength move the gospel forward a little bit at a time, one person at a time. Amen? Father, thank you for this time of communion where we can confess our sin and remember your finished work, that we can be refreshed by your grace, that we can recommit ourselves to obeying you, to being real, transparent before you in confession 
to be real in our remembrance of what you did, to be real, really and completely refreshed by your grace, and to really commit ourselves to coming to the truth of who we are and really asking ourselves even in this moment if we actually are obeying your truth or if we're filled with deception and lies and these things which plague us or fear or maybe we've set aside with our ministry because of our adversary. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with these folks here. You do. They have a, a sweet time with you of reflecting and remembering what you did and confessing and and, and recommitting themselves and myself to your cause. We love you when we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Help.